Welcome to the Weave Your Bliss podcast. I'm your host, Paula Crossfield, a Vedic astrologer and business coach helping you to live in your purpose. And that is what this podcast is all about. So let's jump right in to the conversation. Hello and welcome to Weave Your Bliss. I'm Paula Crossfield, your host, and I am so excited to share with you the guest I have on tap for you today, Acharya Shunya. I will get into more about her in just a second. Before I do that, I just want to say that the astrology guidebook for 2023 is out now. I talked a little bit about it on last week's podcast. If you didn't catch that, just go back and and I talk a little bit more about why it's so valuable. But this is basically a calendar of all of the Lalo dates, the new moons, the full moons, the eclipses, the locations in the sky, what that even means. My specifically picked out auspicious dates for the year so that you can use that for launching or creating connection and being visible and being out in the world. And then all my Lalo dates for the times to be resting and taking care of yourself and moving a little bit more slowly. And there's so much more because you can drop it into your Google Calendar and I have information in the descriptions. And I've made it even more refined this year. You don't have to know specifics about astrology to benefit from this. And 100% of the profits go to charity. So I hope that you enjoy that. And I want to tell you about our guest today, Acharya Shunya. She's the first female lineage holder of her distinguished Vedic tradition and is an internationally renowned scholar, teacher, author, speaker, and scholar of non-dual wisdom. Advaita from India and a classically trained master of yoga and Ayurveda. She's also the founder of the Awakened Self Foundation and the nonprofit Vedika Global Incorporated, platforms headquartered in Northern California that empower, educate, and inspire a global community of students through online courses, workshops, and retreats. These conversations are furthered by Shunya's top rated podcast, Shadow to Self. An award-winning author of international repute, Shunya's most recent book, Roar Like a Goddess, Every Woman's Guide to Becoming Unapologetically Powerful, Prosperous, and Peaceful, was published by Sounds True September 2022 and is now available worldwide. We talk a lot about this book. We talk about the goddesses. We talk about her work and how she came to be doing this work, how she came to be the holder of this 2,000-year-old lineage, what that was like for her. She is really inspiring as for how she's interpreted the Sanatana Dharma or this stream of knowledge coming from India in a new way where it's very understandable to us modern folk and we're able to like apply it to our lives. So she talks a lot about that and tells some stories here. I'm just so excited to share this with you. So I look forward to hearing how you like it. And here, without any further ado, is my interview with Acharya Shunya. Hello, Acharya Shunya. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Congratulations on the publication of your book, Roar Like a Goddess. I would love it if you could talk a little bit about your journey to this work and why you felt like you wanted to write this book. I wanted to roar. And I wanted to roar like a goddess because I've grown up, Paula, with a goddess who roars because she rides a lion or a lioness at different times. And it is said that the lion lioness are really um, continuation of her own shakti, her own power. And when the lioness roars, it's really the goddess roaring. And I wanted to talk about this journey from from the kind of conversations women have, and even I've had from time to time when I was still conditioned to explain myself, to justify myself, to doubt myself, to make my speech pleasing and even seductive and unknowingly manipulative to this roar, which is an authoritative sound. There is no apology about the power that comes through And when you bring in the goddess stories from India, where I come from, it just becomes really real and doable for a modern day goddess. 
I feel like this book is unique because it takes the stories, but then it really applies what we can do with those stories and how we can utilize the energy of these goddesses. So maybe you can talk a little bit because you focus in on three goddesses in particular, Durga, Lakshmi, and Saraswati. So can you talk a little bit about each of them and how they help us live in our power? Yeah, because as a child, I was exposed to these really paradigm-shifting, game-changing stories of these goddesses in the once-upon-a-time era or land doing things that we modern goddesses should be doing, the modern women and different gendered people should be doing, where they were questioning norms, they were refusing to compromise, they were upholding something divine and serene inside them, and they were really demanding and, and getting the respect that they deserve. But these stories remained in the world of mythology. They were not translating into the real life. And then when I looked at my own mythology, it didn't have those elements for a while there. And that's why I wanted to do the storytelling and then weave it to the stories that we can weave or we can now write for ourselves. And so that's why I took those ancient stories from India and I connected them to our modern life and to current movements like the Me Too movement or the disparity in wages or, or even just this unstated but subliminal message that women get to be a certain way, to become a certain way, to be accepted. And I want them to unbecome from that conditioning. I found this continuation from the ancient to the present, completely possible due to these empowered stories. So can you give us an example, like with the goddess Dorga, for example, you, you talk about how she helps us step into self-respect. And maybe you can talk about a story that illuminates that and how you apply that. I have this really amazing legend of Durga that I've shared in the book about Durga being the great goddess of this universe, uh, being willing to be born as the daughter of a king and queen, the king and queen of the Himalayas, because they were yearning for a child. And she said, all right, I agree to be born as your daughter, but as long as you respect me. And they were like surprised that an infant is asking for respect. And, you know, an infant doesn't speak, but they're like, wow, the great goddess is born in my home. But then Time, the time they forgot that she's the goddess, like we all forget our spiritual origin. And all they could see was this girl child that they needed to now control or more for condition. But the goddess, as a human child, as a princess, decided to marry a yogi, somebody who didn't have much to their name. And they were definitely not a prince. And that upset her parents. And then they agreed because she was a very determined princess. But once the princess came to know that her parents were holding this huge spiritual ritual plus party and everybody was a who's who in the cosmos was invited except her and her, and her yogi husband, Shiva. And she was really upset and she goes to her father and says, you're doing this big thing. How come you forgot to invite your only daughter and your son-in-law? And the king and queen respond, well, you know, do you see the way Shiva dresses? He looks like a hermit. He barely is wearing any clothes and it's going to be so embarrassing to introduce him as a son-in-law. So we decided not to invite you. We agreed to let you get married to who you wanted to, but we don't really want to socialize with you guys, with the rest of our elite guest list. She's really upset, and this was disrespect. And that was really Durga, born as a princess. The princess came back into her Durga nature and said, remember what I had told you when I was born, that I'll stay with you as long as you respect me. And by disrespecting my husband, disrespecting my choice, You've disrespected the goddess inside me. And now I'm going to burn to ashes this very body that you claim to be yours, that you can manipulate, that you can uh, guilt, that you can 
push into shame and blame. I'm not going to take it anymore. And she leaves the body. The body falls to the ground and just becomes a heap of ashes because she emerges from that body like a fiery flame and she disappears into the heaven. You know, she returns from where she came from and the king and queen were left there crying. And this was a pretty macabre story as a child to hear that. And yet it left me not only with goosebumps, but with conviction that any relationship that disrespects you, even if it's your own parents, if it disrespects you, if it violates a goddess-like self within you, then you have to at least burn those attachments. You don't have to ignite your own body into a flame, but you can at least (laughs) set a light and kindle those very agreements. And Paula, I have been setting to fire such agreements with lovers or partners or friends or even relatives when it doesn't work. And it doesn't mean I'm a cantankerous person who's looking to be upset, but there are times when I have to just let it go. And I hope that helps our listeners. Yeah. And I think that story doesn't show that she's she's angry, but with divine rage. And I think that goes back to this word roar, you know, so maybe you can talk a little bit about the difference between productive anger and a, and a non-productive anger. And I have a chapter in the book, Roar Like a Goddess, called, when I call it raging is a goddess thing to do, because, you know, when women rage, we're called witches and bitches and hags and nags. When a man rages, it's considered like the man is in, is in control and there's some power there with their rage, whereas our rage completely makes us powerless in the eyes of society. Like we're throwing a tantrum, <laughs> uh, not really expressing our true emotion, our true feelings. And so I have gone to the effort of explaining three kinds of anger. There is the unconscious anger that we must all avoid. You know, it's the anger that's born of silly entitlements and, um, you know, just our indulgences of our ego. And there's no room for that anger for any gender. That's just a waste of time. And it causes, you know, dis-ease in the body and mind and alienates us from our spirit potential. But there is a room for conscious anger when we have discerned that Anger is necessary because anger as an emotion is an informer of violations. Anger is a divine messenger that something needs to give here. Something needs to change here. Something needs to be called out here. And when we have a relationship with conscious anger, we become unabusable. We don't have to say me too anymore. (laughs) We're unabusable. When we feel angry with our extra weight, We start exercising. When we feel angry with the way people are crossing our boundaries, we assert new ones. So anger is almost imperative and a necessary emotion to be experienced before we can bring about positive change. And that is conscious anger. And conscious anger has a beginning and an end. It has a start and a resolution. It has a cause and a positive effect. And that's very different from unconscious anger that spews, that makes us bitter, that makes us physically and emotionally sick, that makes us violent at times, whereas conscious anger may even make us kinder, healthier, formal, assertive, clear-headed, and relieved because we felt it and we brought about a change. And then there is even superconscious anger which is something like the goddess Durga channels to bring about change in the world. And I feel like I wrote this book, Roar Like a Goddess, from channeling superconscious anger, which is not anger pertaining to you specifically, not pertaining to your little life story, but you feel it for the rest of the world. I feel it when there is racial injustice. When we come on on the come out on the streets and we ask for justice, when we ask for equality, when we ask for genders, gender, sexual, racial equality, 
and we go to length lens to make it happen, we are acting from a collective superconscious anger to make this planet a better place for all of us. Some of that superconscious is even felt by environmental activists. It was channeled by Mandela when he ended apartheid in South America. And uh, I feel like I wrote this book from the anger that I feel for the way women are being treated all over the world still, even in America where I live, where it may be a little sophisticated and hidden, but it's there. It Because patriarchy just changes forms and it morphs, it, but it lives in feudal and contemporary societies. And I wanted to call it out because I personally now live in a pretty privileged life as a spiritual teacher, as a leader of a lineage, several organizations, you know, I'm walking a really clear and easy path. But just because that's my individual story doesn't mean everybody got freedom. Nope, they don't. So I feel like Durga in her story as a princess who did like disrespect, like she she didn't even keep nagging with her father and mother. She just stopped being their daughter. It's a little drastic, but I feel like she prioritized her primordial relationship with her goddess essence first before she gave importance to her primary relationships. Even. And that's important because we get lost in our primary relationships. But the primordial relationship is with our spirit. And you can give up on that one. So before I am a mom, because I'm a mom, before I'm a wife, before I'm a daughter, these stories give me the permission to be a goddess-like self within. So beautiful. Thank you. I'm really refreshed, honestly, by your interpretation of the teachings. I think it's rare, you know, having been kind of steeped in Sanatana Dharma and Hinduism and the teachings myself. When I read the book, I was like, wow, this is just such a new way of looking at these teachings and interpreting them for a modern time. So I'm curious, like, was it hard for you to speak your truth around this? No, it just took me 50 plus years to. <laughs> I was never hiding, but it was not very clear. And Paula, I didn't plan this book. I didn't premeditate upon these are my thoughts and this is what I'm going to put out. The book came through me during the goddess festival called Navratri. And on the sixth day of divine manifestation, I was working on another book. I have several books out already, and I was working on a different book on a completely different subject related to Ayurveda and psychology. And I felt this calling that I must write the book. And this is the book that came out. So clearly, I'm a woman who thinks differently from the scripted version of Sanadana Dharma. The Sanadana Dharma that's out there is patriarchically stained. And I'm a teacher of the original Sanatana Dharma, which is progressive, which sees the divinity or the divine reality as formless, and then it can show up in masculine, feminine, or even mixed gender and transgender forms. Wow, that's progressive for being the oldest system of spiritual thought in the world. That was progressive. That was the normal way to be. The current Sanatana Dharma is, is not that. I wouldn't say it's completely closed, but it's not that open. And also the mythology, I find it patriarchically stained. Because for a while there, the rishis or the seers who gave us this open, beautiful teaching was replaced by the Purohits, which is all male priests. And they developed this agenda. That to be a goddess is to be fertile. To be a goddess is to obey your in-laws. To be a goddess is to always be beautiful, big-breasted, and, you know, reproductively agile. That's not, I don't, you don't find that in the scripture. That's just all made up. That's so, so powerful. Yeah, and I think somewhere maybe on the book it says it's a revolutionary revisioning of the feminine divine and carries the potential to change the face of modern feminist spirituality, which is, it's powerful. It's like allowing us as women or who 
people who identify as women to re-envision ourselves in the story and not just have someone else write the story for us. Yeah, because uh, when I heard these goddess stories as a child, it always felt like I'm this lowly human and the goddess is far away, but I'm a non-dual teacher. And if the goddess lives within me, then I want to think like her. I want to talk like her. I want to be sassy like her. I want to be gorgeous like her. I want to be wise like her. This was my non-dual part of me, the, 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 the teacher of the Upanishads in the Bhagavad Gita. When I went into the goddess teachings, I was like, wait, these can't just be stories about some mythological character out there, some deity out there. This is all happening within my own subconscious. And that's when a really love affair with the goddess began, where I started like channeling Durga, Lakshmi, and Saraswati in my life. I just didn't know I'd be writing about it and talking to Paula one day. But then the goddess, in her great, in her great decision, decided, Shunya, you're doing this. Because for a long time, this was just my private Sanatana Dharma Hindu practice. This is my private life. And on the world stage, I was a teacher of Ayurveda or yoga philosophy, or you go learn Bhagavad Gita from me. And if you you had the rare privilege of coming to my home, you would find a goddess there, a deity, and you'll say, well, who is she? Oh, she's Durga. And then I'm done. And I won't really talk about her. And now that's all I do. So it's, I was clearly a ripe fruit and I had to fall from the tree and I had to spread the seeds. So how is it being received, your your interpretation of the scriptures and kind of a modern context with all that's going on with social justice, with climate catastrophe, with, you know, Me Too movement, all of these things? How is it being received, like even back in India um, and then with people like me? In the West, it's been an explosion. It's getting lots of media and press attention and there is an overwhelming response and compliments and thank yous. And I believe it has, it has begun, it has started a movement of sorts. In India, it's just beginning. So right now, up till now, I have got nothing but positive response and I'm keeping my fingers crossed. But if it leads to any controversy, I'll be prepared because I'm also a scholar of the scriptures. I didn't just make it up. I can back up some of my claims of the progressive attitudes from the Vedas and from the Bhagavad Gita. I think it's time to change the narrative and it was time for, and I'm a good person to do this because I'm a traditional teacher. I have the authority to interpret the scriptures and give them forward. And I chose to do it this way. I could have just um, done what's done like talk about Durga, like there's this faraway deity and we have to worship her for grace. But I wanted to bring the goddesses down a few notches and make them humanized. And I wanted to take us humans up and make them more godly. There's a coming closer of divinity and humanity here that's happening. Mm. Maybe this is a good time to share a little bit about your journey to becoming the first female head of your 2,000-year-old lineage. Can you talk to us about your your lineage and, and how this all unfolded? My ancestors go back 2,000 years, literally, in the holy city of Ayodhya in North India. My great ancestor, one of my great ancestors, had a spiritual school called the Gurukulam in India and is mentioned in the Vedas. So I come from a very distinguished family lineage. But my great-grandfather, grandfather, father, who are all teachers and scholars and writers and authors and well-known in India, were truly like me in the sense that they are not just spiritual teachers, but they're activists. They were activists for the era that they were living in. So my great-grandfather and grandfather were gurus in India, but they were also responding to colonialism and the onslaught, uh, and, you know, and the abuse by the British colonial rulers. And so they spoke up for India's independence movement. And they wanted, they gave the slogan called Sarvarogyam Sarvamukti, which is a Sanskrit statement, which literally means 
help for all and freedom for all mukti but then that mukti meant freedom internally and externally from the colonial rulers and they also spoke up for freedom for the women and for the lower caste because in india there was a social evil of casteism lower caste upper caste and my great grandfather grandfather in their schools for the first time introduced children of lower caste they introduced uh, women initially they could come and listen from far and later they were taken on as students also we even had the first gay people who come into our congregation and be with us and be a student and so come from this remarkably progressive family and i didn't realize we were progressive because when you live inside a progressive bubble you think that's it and this is very different from india back then in society of the 19 from the 1800 onwards we've been progressive so it comes to me i'm not surprised i wrote roar like a goddess i have a dna which gives me permission to do this and my father raised me not like a girl not like a boy he raised me like this free soul and he was criticized for it for raising this bold daughter in the 1960s and i was shamed a little bit by the extended society for being not the typical conventional girl who was going to lead a spiritual lineage but i think my grandfather who gave me his title knew that i am the right person for this century because my feet are well embedded in dharma or what is good for the world and me but my head is completely open and aware of what is needed for our century and i and i believe the non-dual principle i don't have pride around being an indian or brown or i don't see colors i don't see gender differences i see the one truth in all being and that's how my family has lived and operated it didn't prepare me for the real life because the real life was segregated the real life shames you the society blames you it embarrasses you so i had a period when my my first marriage broke down i had a arranged marriage and it didn't work out because i was expected to toe the line and i'm happy to toe all kinds of lines as long as those lines are dharmic and they begin and end in equality i'm all for duty and responsibility a very conscientious person but i'm not but servitude is not my nature i'm a durga and when i left that marriage all i went through some darkness and i write about it in the book how i inhaled patriarchy and i felt responsible and i felt like a failure for a while but just a short while just enough to hit the yeah hit the floor and know that i don't belong there <laughs> like now nah, this, yeah. this is not this is not my destiny yeah i think a lot of people can see themselves in that experience too you know we have so much enculturation that we have to hit the wall sometimes and experience these kinds of things to wake up and see that it doesn't have to be that way I would love to talk about with you is the goddess Lakshmi because of course a lot of listeners are spiritual entrepreneurs. I'm a business coach and I work with spiritual entrepreneurs and I see a lot of them really working on their relationship with Lakshmi. I hear a lot of stories from spiritual practitioners who are looking to start a business or who have a business about how money is not spiritual, for example, and I think you cover this nicely in the book. I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about that and what does money have to do with our dharma? everything in fact money is so important that according to the vedas which are the most ancient and progressive spiritual tradition in the world also known as the um you know the source of sanatana dharma the vedas say that to lead a balanced life we need four things and it begins with wealth artha and the second one is kama which means pleasure So if you think that you just want to be all serious and all the time meditate and not have fun and not be playful and not be sexual then you just end up becoming a pervert and we now know that all the celibate traditions have come crashing down 
enforce celibacy in the name of God is just ridiculous. It's so much better to have conscious agreements around sexuality, but to just suppress it is going against nature. And wealth is so important because wealth is, even a bird has wealth in the form of those little twigs that she collects to be secure, to build a nest. A bear has wealth when they collect honey and nuts and fruits to hibernate over the year. So we have our different forms of wealth. The wealth could be a cow or a horse or a bank account or jewelry or stock. But all these things not only lead to security, but once our wealth needs are abundant, our material wealth, let's just put it that way, it is so important that it becomes the basis of dharma. Because if your wealth needs are not fulfilled, you cannot really begin to share. If you're feeling this gap inside you, you can talk about philanthropy, but it's not going to happen naturally. You're not built for it. The human brain is built for survival and thrive. And only when you survive and thrive can then you give and share. And that's a natural order. And so religions that guilt you to give and share, it's just that. It's guilt. But the Vedas were not built on guilt. They were built on common sense and understanding the human nature. And they said, first, even before pleasure, take care of your wealth. Because wealth will take care of your physical body and safety and security. It's not just about $100 is enough. If you are born to a king, if you are a prince or a princess, or you're born to a wealthy parent, your wealth needs would be higher than somebody who was born to middle-class parents, because that's what you're used to. So it's not just about five dresses are enough in your closet. Otherwise, you're not spiritual. Now, I'm somebody who was born to a middle-class but very comfortable home. And so that's the minimum I need to show up as Acharya Shunya in the world. And I have no guilt around it. And now to pretend to sit on the floor and then be more spiritual than my grandfather, it's not necessary. They said that before you can take up dharma, which is the third goal, and higher values, humane values, and before you take up moksha, which is the ultimate goal of spiritual liberation and freedom and knowing your inner godly self, you have to also ensure that you are fulfilling the goal of artha, material wealth, and then kama, material pleasure through sexuality, recreation, music, art, and dance. And this creates a complete life. And Goddess Lakshmi, through her four hands, she's blessing us. And each of this hand represents each of these goals. And interestingly, we see Lakshmi bedecked with jewels and gems, and rubies, and pearls, and she's wearing the most gorgeous silks. And her her being is so filled with abundance that she has a golden hue. She has different color of her skin. She's shown as black. She's um, fair complexion, pink complexion, green complexion, but her, but her hue is golden because gold represents material wealth. And so we have a whole goddess that is showing us that please don't separate your spiritual essence from your material essence. Both of them are necessary for you to lead a complete life because you are spirit, but you are embodied. And when you're embodied, for an embodied person to push away their spirit is foolishness. But for a spiritual person to make their embodied needs invisible is suicide. Because then when you sit down to meditate, your brain waves are only going to think about what's missing, what's lacking, what's not there. And instead lead a balanced life, a fulfilled life, not a greedy life, but lead a, lead a balanced life, fulfilled life, so that then you gener- you feel gratitude And from that gratitude, you also become a giver and a sharer. And then you transcend everything at some at some point. You transcend everything because you're fulfilled. For example, I have lots of beautiful clothes in my closet. So now when I travel, I'm not going shopping anymore because I'm done. 
it's fulfilled. That need is fulfilled. In fact, every year I give away more clothes than buy them. And it's not like, okay, you have to shop till you become generous. I'm not saying that. I'm just saying I don't have a perverted relationship with handbags or clothes saying I'm too spiritual to have them. I'd rather have them. I'd rather talk about my handbags and clothes on the world stage because then they're not so important to be hidden. And that's why we have uh, Hindu Sanatana Dharma goddesses be decked and be jeweled, especially Lakshmi. They're showing us how to enjoy. Is yeah. that what you're saying? They are. Beautiful. So what does it mean to you to live in your purpose? That's really the topic of this podcast is like finding purpose, how it unfolds. So you can talk a little bit about how you found it in your own life or how it's come about or how, what you would suggest to others who are looking to live more in their purpose. Again, I go back to Lakshmi and her four hands. And now instead of trying to have this one big purpose, like uh, my purpose is to write books till, you know, till I can or to become a very famous spiritual teacher or the best mom or the best wife. I just feel grateful that I have this opportunity in the world to be a spirit in embodied form. And so I make sure I'm secure. That's a purpose I have on a daily basis, materially secure. So I take care of the things I have and I make sure I have, I'm earning or I'm supporting my partner in earning to make sure that I can enjoy for myself and share because we do a lot of philanthropy. And so, you know, that's one of my purposes is to be wealthy, to be stable and to be generous with that wealth. That's a very clear purpose I have every day because of which I am benefiting and myself and I'm benefiting so many. Then I have the purpose to be playful because karma is there. So I laugh and I joke and I cook and I garden and I watch theater. And I and just because I'm a spiritual teacher, I just don't sit on a yoga mat all day oming away. If om is part of my pleasure, I do that. But sometimes um, it takes, you know, I take vacations, I do whatever. And that's part of my life purpose. And it may so not sound very grand, but sometimes when family and friends come over or my students come over and we are laughing and smiling, I feel like my life purpose is being met right there and then. I'm like, yay, I'm meeting my karma purpose. And I don't feel like I'm being distracted from my spiritual journey. I feel like I'm meeting it. And then dharma is like, you know, the first step because we even put dharma before artha and kama. And dharma is every day wake up to be more conscious and take the pains and sufferings of your life and move them towards greater consciousness until the darkness to wake up even more. And that's called dharma. And so every day I try to come into the dharma of being a wife, being a mom, and above all, being a spiritual teacher being a citizen on my planet, which is dying from neglect and abuse. What is my dharma today? So from picking up litter as I walk, to teaching with authenticity and honesty, to writing bold books because they must be written, if not me, who? They will write this. That's dharma, and dharma guides me into purity and goodness and duty and responsibility every day from a pure place. And finally, my life purpose through all of this is moksha or mukti, which means through all of this, one of my life purposes is to discover who am I? Where was I before I was in this body? Where is the goddess? Is she far away in some Hindu heaven or is she everywhere coming to me through every eye? Like even she's talking to me through Pala and she's asking me these deep questions. And how am I going to show up? And do I feel attached and compelled to respond in a certain way? Or am I free to be who I am, to speak my truth and to be non-grasping in this interaction for it to go a certain way? And that's freedom. And so for me now, Paula, to be honest, this is not a very like wowing answer as to what's my life purpose, but my life purpose is simple. And these four ways of being in balance is helping me connect with something more profound on a daily basis. I don't have to shun my material body or my material desires. At the same time, I don't get greedy and warped up because I don't have a 
I'm not driving the best car around, you know, because I have dharma and dharma makes me content and makes me want to do more philanthropy uh, when I can. So I wonder if this answers you, but it gives me a very beautiful life and a balance between doing and non-doing, efforting and receiving, between being the goddess and then asking for grace at the same time. No, I think that's really helpful just to help people see that there's a way that they can use these teachings to sort of find their way in their purpose and let it unfold, you know? So I think that's really powerful. And as you were talking, you know, you mentioned security and I was thinking about, you know, I get this question a lot and I feel like you would be a great person to, to talk about this. So, you know, I work with a lot of spiritual entrepreneurs. Some of them are selling spiritual solutions. Some of them are just their spiritual beings who are working and they're doing work that is meaningful to them. I get this question from my folks who are selling spiritual solutions about how I feel about selling spirituality or spiritual solutions. So I'm wondering if you might talk a little bit about that, like creating offerings that are distinct, but they are a lineage or in a teaching and how we do that in a good way. I can tell you from experience that if you're a spiritual teacher who has solutions, don't give your solutions for free. And I can tell this openly and clearly, and I can say this from experience. I come from a lineage where we had never charged anything. And we would just sit down and teach, and the village, the city, and the people of our country would take care of us. My lineage goes back many centuries. I have seen it live, and I know it's a record through 17, 18, 19, 20. I'm in the 21st century. And I know times have changed now. And everybody's a guru on the internet. Everybody's teaching through their TikTok and their Instagram. And if you sit down there and if you just sit there and think that you're going to give your teaching for free, you can do that, but you won't get a reciprocation from society that looks after your material needs. And so you will only have dharma, but you won't have any artha, security. You won't have any karma, playfulness, and to go against those four goals is like making yourself really vulnerable and going against the intelligence of society, of the universe, because you have to study the society. And so now I am still the teacher I was, and for many, many years, I gave my education free right here in America, and I found some beautiful students, but... The lesson that I learned from all of that was that my teachings were not as valued as they should have been. And then when I started charging reasonable and ethically, where you are not stealing from people, we, I tend to over-deliver when people come and study with me, under-promise, over-deliver. I found that my studentship grew, the gratitude grew, the retainership grew. And then I remembered something that I'm an Acharya, a master teacher, and we have some teachings of how to be an Acharya. And one of the verses says that don't teach as per some ideal, teach as per the sensibility of the century in which you are born. And I had forgotten that I was just simply cloning my ancestors. And so in a way, I was being unconscious. I was like trying to walk the holy path without and forgetting to be wholesome in the process. And in doing that, I was really giving great wisdom to those who didn't deserve it because they didn't reciprocate it with some gifts. And in India, you never approach a guru without a material gift in your hand. But here, people came empty-handed. They left with spiritual knowledge, and I was left more and more depleted for a while there. I and my team, you can say. I made that mistake knowingly or unknowingly, maybe because I can talk about it later. But I did it because, you know, when you're in your 30s and 40s, you're still not woken up enough to change something. Then I did. So it's not about off from bitterness, but it's actually an application of a principle from the Vedas called Yajna. And in Yajna, Y-A-J-N-A, it literally says that everything is reciprocal and that's the truth. It's not linear. 
So you can't say that clouds are so kind, they keep giving us rain. Because when they drop rain, the rain collects, the river flows to the ocean, and then the ocean allows itself to be evaporated to fulfill the clouds many more times. There is a circle of life. There is an outflow and an inflow. And if there is only an outflow of teachings, wisdom, knowledge, love, affection, anything in any relationship, and you're not getting it back, then you are going against the law of the universe. As a result, as human beings, not only for money, but even with your love and affection, rein it in and make sure that you're just not giving, giving, giving because you're now addicted to giving or you are in the conditioning of giving or you are in some archetype of holiness and poverty is better than wealth and all those kinds. These are all just thoughts and it's our responsibility to see if those thoughts are really aligned with the universal law of reciprocity. That's what I would say. I feel like we just came full circle <laughs> from the beginning of the conversation. I have a few rapid fires for you. Is that okay? Yeah. Can we go into those? Um, so what is one piece of advice that has really helped you in your life? My one piece of advice came from my father that really helped me was that never bow to anyone except to the goddess. So I don't have servitude towards humans. Um, when you feel anxious, confused, or frustrated, what's the first thing you do to ground yourself? I put my right hand or my left hand on my heart and the other one over it. And I tell my anxious heart and mind, I am here for you. Because I know that my mind is anxious, but I'm a great soul. And so I bring presence and reassurance to my own mind. Mm, so beautiful. Um, what is your favorite hot beverage? Chai. You ask an Indian what's their hot beverage, they'll say chai. <laughs> Sometimes I get a coffee. <laughs> Depends. What about your last meal on earth? What would it be? I think rice, cooked rice with cooked lentils called dal and some clarified butter ghee on it with cumin. It's my go-to oh, favorite nice. meal that my mother would cook and I still love it. So rice dal, Indian style. Um, do you have a morning routine? And if so, what part is non-negotiable? Waking up in the morning is non-negotiable. Early morning, I like waking up before the sun rises. And I like um, snuggling up in a window that looks towards the eastern sky with a cup of hot water and wait for the sun to rise while I have conversations with myself during that time. Can you tell us about a person who inspires you and why? That person would clearly be Baba, the name that I call my grandfather, my guru. And I really feel that Divine Mother Durga Lakshmi Saraswati were present in his being. And he raised me literally because my mother passed away when I was 10. My father had a busy job. And so he raised me. Not only biologically was he there for me as my ancestor, but he gave me his entire knowledge and his love of the goddess. And I talk about him in all my books, Baba. Um, I'm grateful that he not only taught me systematically, but he inspired me to lead a bold and life, which is called bold by other people, but it's just my life. I just lead it the way I should be leading. Tell us something that people might not know about you. <laughs> I'm kind of an open book. I don't know what people don't know about me, but I'm out on the world stage a lot. I'm everywhere. Um, and people think that I'm a very outward person. But the truth is that I'm a total monk. And I'm a very private person. I'm a recluse. And I feel shy outside, but I show up anyway. Yeah. So my shyness is unknown to people. My quietness, my my tendency to withdraw. So after I've been out on the world stage, I spend days just being quiet. Um, so tell us what you're reading right now, or if there's a book that you would suggest to the audience. I can only recommend the Bhagavad Gita, which is a great book from the Sanatana Dharma tradition. And there are many, 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 many 
English translations and commentaries. And maybe Paula, you can add the spelling for this book. Sure. Yeah, we'll put it in book. the show notes. Yeah, it's a life-changing book. And I would seriously recommend having one by your bedside and even reading a page a day. Is there a, a commentary or a, a translation that you prefer that you would recommend? I think a book by Ekanath Ishwaran is good. If Also, if people looked up my book, Sovereign Self, it's full of Bhagavad Gita wisdom made easy. Beautiful. We'll put it in the show notes. Mm -hmm. What is one thing that's bringing you joy right now? I am currently with my father. He's 90. I'm at his home. I am offering him my seva, my duty, my love, my devotion, and I'm taking care of his aging body. And when I do that, I'm reciprocating back all the love and attention and care I got from him. And just to be of service biologically as a daughter is really giving me a lot of joy. It's not necessarily comfortable. It's not necessarily glamorous, but it's fulfilling. So beautiful. So where can people connect with you online? And is there anything coming up that you want them to know about? We'll, of course, put the book in the show notes. I'm teaching all the time. So you're welcome to check me out on my two websites, which I'm sure, Paula, you will share. One is by my name, acharyashunya.com. And the other one is by the name of my foundation where I teach, awakenedself.com. So check it, check the events page and join me for any of my goddess teachings. I'm beginning a roaring workshop series where I cover the three main areas that we need some divine feminine wisdom on relationships, on wealth, and finally on health. And you can check out those workshops and join me if you want online. And I will help unpack those areas with details and practices and mantras and meditations to really solidify your knowledge and bring ease into a new roaring, like a roaring way through these areas of life. Thank you for your time. It's been a pleasure talking to you today. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Weave Your Bliss podcast. We hope it was inspiring for you. Please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and leave a comment for us. I want to thank the team at Team Podcast who helped get this podcast out to you. And also to thank the musicians who were the creators of this beautiful music we're listening to now. It comes from an album, Fragments of a Season, by Alexis Georgopoulos and Jeffrey Cantula-Desma. So check it out wherever you get your music. Have a wonderful day and we will connect soon on a future episode. 